The following program is an abridged audio version of the streaming video talk show, A Wonderful Chaos. The hosts are Andy Chaliff and Bambos Dimitriou. The format is entirely casual, unscripted conversation. If you'd like to watch a live taping or participate with your comments in real time, subscribe to A Wonderful Chaos on YouTube, Facebook, Periscope, or Twitch. I grew up listening to Nelson Mandela speeches. Yeah. Like he had a heart of justice. If there was anything that he could not tolerate in the world, like he was such a man of action, very little words, very quiet, you know, but what would get his face red was just reading stories of injustice. So we grew up listening to the German, the Irish, the Japanese persecution. I really hope it doesn't take like four decades yeah. for like, yeah, yeah, and the Islamophobia and like the kind of like all these sentiments that grew after 9-11 that were kind of anti-Arab, anti-Muslim to finally say like this, you know, whatever happened that day wasn't connected to 99% of Arabs and Muslims in the world. It's a wonderful chaos, Solo or tandem? We work to find rest and fight to find peace, both head and the heart. And the atheist pray? It's a wonderful chaos, and we like it that way. It's a wonderful chaos, and we like it that way. It's a wonderful chaos, and we like it that way. Today, Bambos. This is of, episode 200. This is episode 200, yeah. And, and it's probably one of, I, I find it one of the most important episodes we've ever done. I find it the most important episode we've ever done. This episode has made me emotional. It's made me angry. It's made me feel like, why am I doing this to myself? Because in some weird way, it's like it's easier to put your head in the sand when issues like this come up. And Noor uh, Elashi. E. E. Elashi. Elashi. You pronounce better than I do because you're near to her country. Um, She trusted us to, to take the journey with her. And we're going to discuss her father's imprisonment. He was part of the Holy Land Foundation, which was named the Holy Land Five, which was a group of people that were sought out and I would say persecuted by the U.S. government for doing incredibly beautiful work in the world. And that he was imprisoned in 2007 in April. So this is the anniversary month. And we're going to discuss with Noor that journey and where she is now, and yeah, how she keeps the hope going. There's oh. shows like this that we take on where, you know, we've had people that have had, that have been raped, that have been molested. Interestingly, those were hard subjects to hold space for. Yeah. But I, I notice for me, when I have to hold injustice, and especially when that injustice is going on in, in the moment that I'm also present, it's really hard. Yeah, I don't know why. It's just it's easier to sit with somebody when they've actually gone through a trauma that we can hold space for. But when it's an injustice, then it feels totally different. Yeah, I I can't put words to that. Yeah, I completely resonate with that. And um, and Noor, I know her because Noor wrote the article for my first book for Buzzworthy and for the Last Letter book, as you know. So that's how we met. And then I saw her post something. It would have been maybe even a year ago concerning this situation. And I forgot about it. And then I invited her to join, not even knowing any of the real story. And then she said to me, Andy, I don't know if you know what you're asking me. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Like it was she's lived through years and years and years of uh, sharing the story in universities across America and just having anyone listen. And, and, and I think it, what I gathered was she took a pause from that because it took such a toll on her life. So for me to invite her to share the space with us was really inviting her to come back to things that she had left a bit behind. Yeah. So in that way, I'm really grateful for her to, uh, to just to, to trust us in this journey with her. Yeah. yeah. So I'd say, Bring her on. It would be great to bring her on. Yeah. Hello. 
Hello. Can you guys nice. hear me? Yes, we hear you. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> Welcome. You know, uh, when I was walking today, because I walk every day and uh, meditating around like where I wanted our show to begin in this show was like, I thought of your dad. And I have to tell you, when I think of him, it really makes me want to cry. It's hard for me to sit with what I can only imagine is the helplessness that you're feeling. And I can't imagine I, I, I if I just touch it in myself, it begins to it, it, it feels stupid to ask you questions. That's how it feels. And I see Bombus is already going. I'm already halfway there. So so the 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 thing I actually thought it would be beautiful is just to set, have like a minute of silence, just to acknowledge that your dad is sitting in years of that same silence and, and to share the gratitude. Because in a way, this man who's actually was trying to do incredibly great loving work in the world is now being persecuted for that. And there's something that's incredible about that, which makes his life full of so much meaning, even though it's hard to see and experience that. So I, I just want to spend a minute of just silence and allow us to share that together before we start. Yeah. Hmm. I'm I'm probably not going to be able to talk for the show. Yeah. <laughs> no, let's all have a beautiful conversation for sure. In 2007, your dad is taken away from you. Like how is it for you to live with the feeling that you are in America, this country which has hope and opportunity? And then you see this injustice that occurs. Like, how do you reconcile that in your life? Yeah, so I definitely have a very complex relationship with America, my my country of birth, um, my native land, the only home I ever knew. Because, uh, you know, this was a land that my father came to, like, uh, back in the 70s and um, made into his home after... Uh, years of feeling displaced. Um, my father is a Palestinian refugee. And um, basically, his mom lost her home in 48. And, uh, you know, after the Holocaust, there were families that moved into a bunch of Palestinian homes, um, definitely, uh, you know, basically creating this cycle of homelessness and, and oppression. And my grandma was was one of the women who ended up uh, into a refugee. And that kind of um, continued the cycle into my father's uh, life. He lived all over Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And he lived in boarding schools. And then finally, you know, they made their way to America. And it was it was a beautiful, hopeful moment. Um and he married my mom in the 80s and they, they moved here and I was born in the mid 80s. And it was it was a, a really I mean, I had a, an absolutely gorgeous childhood. You know, we went to Disneyland and <laughs> we did it all. And, and, you know, it wasn't until the 90s that I started to feel this hostility mm. Um, you know, my my family is Muslim and they are my mother covers, you know, and the ironic part is they were very excited to move here because the Middle East did not allow freely the practicing of like religions. There was so much chaos happening, like mm. in the 50s and 60s and 70s that a lot of like Muslim families came to America because they knew they could practice their religion freely here. And so, you know, my my parents were very hopeful. They were very excited. And they, when my dad came, um, you know, and in the 90s, when we really started to hear uh, mostly a lot of like pro-Zionist, pro-Israeli lobby groups um, speaking of uh, basically the, the charity that he started, um, the Holy Land Foundation for Relief and Development, as if it was, you know, some kind of like conspiring funding, you know, 
for like designated terrorist groups, it was a huge shock for me. Um, and so, yeah, we, we started feeling it in the early nineties. And then of course he was arrested in 2000, uh, like a few, well, his charity was shut down in 2001 and he was arrested in 2004. So right around the millennium era and right around nine 11, he became like collateral damage to, you know, what had happened. And basically this is the other side of that story. Like I'm all, you know, very sympathetic for those who lost families during nine 11, yeah. you know, unfortunately there was this whole other side to that story of people who became collateral damage. Yeah. That was the same word that I thought of the whole time was collateral damage. In fact, I didn't remember the word at first. I'm like, what's that damage word? What's the, da-? and, <laughs> and, and, and the thing that fascinated me and, and we talk about it a lot on the show is that when people have fear, they give up so many rights and their rational thinking decreases. So the one thing that I that didn't surprise me was that your father's foundation was praised and the same organizations he was giving money to, U.S. organizations were giving money to. They just weren't Muslim organizations. Right, and, exactly. And the, harsh, and the hardest thing for me to see is that if any logical individual were to look at this case, just mm-hmm. just using rationale, just 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 using numbers like logic, like if we're giving to a foundation and American organizations are giving to that same foundation, then why would we designate one and not another as a terrorist enabler? Right. That's it's it's the only difference is one happens to be run by a Muslim group and the other one is just a generic U.S. aid group. So in some weird way that sat with me ever since watching these two documentaries. Yeah. And it came up during the trials, you know, are the defense attorneys definitely mentioned that several times that, you know, that, that was and remains our greatest defense that the USAID, an American government organization was giving to the same exact distribution centers in Palestine that the Holy Land Foundation was giving money to and food and medicine and basic humanitarian aid. The main difference is that, you know, yeah, my father and actually four other men who were called the Holy Land Five, um, they all are, yeah, they're Palestinian, they're Muslim. And so that was the difference. And so the, Mm. the government attorneys, the prosecutors said, well, they must have known while the American government agencies had no idea. And the funny part is even throughout the trials and even after the trials, the USAID and the American government continued to give charity to those same distribution centers. Yeah, which, as I saw and I kept reading, which were also designated by the U.S. government to be okay to give money to. Oh, yeah. So the the actual Zakat committees, which literally means like, uh, zakat means donations or like the the act of giving um the these charities or these distribution centers not one of them were ever and until this day ever put on ofac's uh designated terrorist list yeah so that's again another huge defense for us yeah so what you're telling us is they must have known like those words just stay in my mind they must have known so it's an assumption it's absolutely an assumption. Yeah, they must have known. They must have known. And I sat through both trials. Like I was a budding journalist at the time. I was like, I'm going to work for the New York Times. You know, I was mm-hmm. like on my way to like applying to a few master's programs. I got into the new school um, in New York City. I got like a master of fine arts and creative writing. I got into it because I wrote so much about this father daughter memoir that I was working on. Mm. And, you know, it. Yeah, it's just, it's definitely really funny the way it all played out. But. Yeah, and I think the the humor or the humor, the absurdity that, that's really, absurdity. That, I, that I've been struggling with is that even the people that were the prosecutors don't deny that there was no association between what your father was doing and terrorism. There's no, they. it's all inferred because in helping the children, and the disabled and those that don't have enough food, there is the implicit sub- idea that there is also support of, of course, Hamas, 
which has been designated as a terrorist organization. But there is no direct link, which is the most it's the most it's it's the craziest thing, because if we went through life and I said, every time I go to a dinner party, if everyone in that party is someone that I'm now guilty for all of their sins, I couldn't go out. I mean, there there is right. no there is no surviving in the world if you're held accountable for something that has absolutely nothing to do with you. Right. And that stemmed from the material support law, which was basically um, strengthened after 9-11 through the Patriot Act, which basically made it illegal to give material support in the form of humanitarian aid and then make these like convoluted charges, these trumped up charges and and make it okay to go to court with that. It's also just really important to know that um, the Holy Land Foundation was uh, tried here in Texas, which is where I'm based now in Dallas, Texas, um, which was a pretty tough crowd. And, you know, right after 9-11. Um, and, but, and, the president, and the president is Bush at that time, who's right, already well, said on TV that these people are guilty. So you've already got a horrible. Right. Yeah. Guilty, guilty before proven innocent, for sure. This was a classic example. But even with all of that, there were actually two trials. And the first trial ended in a hung jury, um, which is very, very important to know. And this is kind of a little bit of a sidetrack. But like the other day, I was watching the Playboy Enterprise um, documentary, (laughs) which is, you know, pretty fascinating. And it goes into Hugh Hefner and how he did a lot of political uh, work around censorship, which, as you may know, through his work around nudity and everything. Yeah. But one of the things that I found fascinating is he actually he was put in a full length trial. And by the end of that trial, there was a hung jury, which is literally what happened in my father's case. Yeah. Now, the difference between that case and this case, well, there's a lot of differences. But the main difference is that they once there's a hung jury when the basically what it means is when the 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 jury deliberates for like two three weeks and they don't come up with a unanimous verdict what ends up happening is the charges then are dropped and there's nobody who then attempts to retry the case in our in our case it was that after the hung jury it was actually a deliberation of almost yeah like two and a half to three weeks you know the jury went in they talked about it there were definitely, there was a split decision. There were like, I would say probably 80 to 90% who thought this was basically a a complete BS case. And then there were people uh, in there who just, who kept saying, no, like these people are guilty. Like, you know, Ghassan is guilty. And when they were asked like, well, why do you, do you have the evidence? They were like, no, we just, we have a feeling like they're, they're, you know, and they could never really show why they thought they were guilty. So Unfortunately, the next year, which was around 2008, they retried the case. And that's when, unfortunately, you know, it was I just sat there after two full length trials. um, And basically, it was one of the most shocking moments of my life. Like my heart just dropped to the floor and hearing the judge basically read one guilty, you know, verdict after the next. um, I was just devastated. Like how, like, take me to that moment. Like, you, I, I, you know, there's moments in my life when everything goes like quiet. It's almost like I can't hear. Like the shock is that deep. I have to imagine that was what it would have been like for you at that moment. Yeah, I have to say, like, it was such an emotional roller coaster in that moment. Like the first thing was shock. You know, it was like basically just being completely speechless for like a few minutes and then it was just absolute rage. Like I felt a lot of anger mm-hmm. and rage. And then I felt like, you know, that I needed to be strong for my family. I was the eldest, I am the eldest of six. And I knew that, you know, I had kind of become like the spokesperson for our family. I was the journalist, you know, I was the one with the writing degree. Um, I was the one who had uh, done a lot of media training and I knew that, that this was the moment for me to just put on this strong face. And I still remember, like, I, I, you know, of course, I didn't shed a tear in the courtroom. I was just angry. And I, mm. I walked 
you know, there was a moment where like all the families said their goodbyes because this was going to be the last time they were going to have their fathers like be able to go home and make brunch for them and, you know, just be amongst them. And that was, that was a heartbreaking, you know, moment to witness, you know, I, I, I took myself out of the picture and I just started to really empathize and sympathize with everybody there and hold space. Mm. And then the minute I walked out of that courtroom, of course, like 30, like, you know, journalists, just like with a mic in my face, you know, like already expecting at that point that I would have something to say. <laughs> and yeah. I, you know, I, yeah, I vocalized like the, the, the huge like injustice that had just taken place and you know i had a very strong feeling that this was going to be because he was sentenced to 65 years in prison and i had a strong feeling that this was going to be a long journey can you before. imagine that we slow down a moment 65 years for yeah. trying to help children in need let's like i want everyone to hear and like i know i always say it as a footnote like 65 years I'm like wait wait like, hold on pause like there's murderers there's murderers that spend less time in prison than your dad for doing charitable work that had no association at all with terrorism we call it it had a connection in some weird regard but 65 years it's incomprehensible yeah exactly it really is yeah that was a whole other thing it's like that 65 year sentence definitely just like was a dagger to my heart you know i just i i it was yeah i couldn't fathom it it was beyond comprehension and it was right around the time i got into a master of fine arts degree program in new york and at that point i was just i was just depleted i was yeah. just i felt you know i had spent the past you know, a few years of my life speaking for his innocence. And, you know, I, I had like my mother who was now, you know, basically alone with these like five siblings of mine. My brothers at the time were, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, like young, you know, tweens and teenagers. And my sister's also pretty young. And I, I did what the only thing I knew how to do at that point, like I ran. And I know, Andy, you know about that. Yeah, know. <laughs> You've been it's, traveling for, for, you know. For, I escaped for my pain past, for, for 20 right? years. I escaped my pain. Yeah. I ran. I went to New York and I mm. felt very guilty about it. Mm. But I ran. I ran and I wanted to be there for my family. And, and I just had taken on so much at such a young age. I was yeah. in my early 20s at the time. And I just, I knew not, I didn't know what to do, but just take some space from the whole thing. I was yeah. like, well, there's nothing I can do at this point. They've sentenced him to 65 years. Yeah. And when did it turn that you started to speak at universities? Because, I mean, you've been to Harvard, Columbia, Yale. I mean, you've gone through all the biggies. And right. those biggies don't invite just people that have nothing to say. So how was it that all of a sudden you at least switched into, I'm going to be a voice and an ambassador in these platforms? Right. So something beautiful about New York is it opened up a world for me because in, in in Dallas, while I was living here, I was mainly just doing like local channels, you know, um, and throughout the trials that the, the attorneys were very much against, like as attorneys are, they were against like, you know, any of the family members speaking out because they said that you can incriminate your father with the with the slightest word with the slightest sentence you could say something that could somehow like be twisted in the in in the media and then like it would support him in you know being even more punished and i was like yeah. well what's worse than 65 years at this point like yeah, exactly <laughs> so what more do we have to lose right now i'm like yeah. dude i'm i'm in new york so yeah i the first time i ever got invited was at yale and i had met these um Columbia University students, which I had actually spoken at Columbia University, but it did launch this like beautiful, like couple year tour um, with all the law clinics at all the Ivy League schools. You know, it was mainly through word of mouth. 
And a lot of the students at these law clinics were just very passionate about this case. I mean, this case, the Holy Land Foundation case, was being used as one of the most absurd, you know, cases, the way that the law was being used against American citizens. It was, it was definitely being used um, as a study case, basically. So you'd have to. I still mm-hmm. can't understand why there's no Netflix series about this. Yeah. Because that's in the works. Like I'm definitely, and this is why I love this platform because if anybody out there is watching this or if anybody out there shares this and somebody out there feels, you know, um, obliged or inspired to support in creating a more mainstream docu-series about this, like the Playboy Enterprise that I was yeah. watching, you know, like, but, this is, I know it's you know, so, you know, like, such a different. You know what I was uh, telling my, my wife though, which is really frustrating is that everybody gets their moment in the sun. Everybody gets their moment of like McCarthyism. We knew it took us years to look back at how everyone was vilified as having any association with communism. Like that, that took us years to like grow and say, oh, how bad were we then? As if the same thing isn't happening now. So, and the ironic part about that is my father was a huge advocate for like that, you know, like basically he, I grew up listening to Nelson Mandela speeches. Yeah. I grew up like he was always the heart of, of, of like he had a heart of justice. If there was anything that he could not tolerate in the world, like he was such a man of action, very little mm-hmm. words, very quiet, you know, but what would get his face red, like that face that you see behind you, Mm. it would get bloodshot red. Like what would get his face red was just reading stories of injustice. So we grew up listening to like the the German, the Irish, the Japanese persecution, you know, the stories of the Japanese internment during World War II. And like, basically it wasn't until 40 years later in the eighties that like the president and like the American government publicly apologized for all of the Japanese families who had gone through that. And so what I continued to say at that point was I really hope it doesn't take like four decades for like, for the, the Islamophobia, yeah, yeah, and the Islamophobia and like the kind of like all these sentiments that grew after 9-11 that were kind of anti-Arab, yeah. anti-Muslim to finally say like this, you know, whatever happened that day wasn't connected to 99% of, mm. you know, Arabs and Muslims in the world. And to yeah. say that we are all one and that we can't separate and it's all an illusion. Yeah, but after 9-11, I mean, if, if if you do the timetable of when all this went down, it was 2001. That was exactly when Bush put the Patriot Act and s- extended all of these sort of material. And I can't remember the so, word you used. The earlier. material support law. The material support law. So in some weird way, through the fear, anxiety, and then add the Islamophobia, then all of a sudden you've got the perfect recipe for people to lose their comprehension. And, right. it, and it's uh, I wanted to move to the second trial for a moment because we, we got through the first one. But the thing that got me really, you know, there were levels of anger as I watched the documentary. First thing I saw that there were only 20,000 people that had viewed that documentary, which already was like. So one of the biggest injustices going on in the U.S. at this moment. And it's not it, it hasn't got the exposure that I imagined it would warrant. That was the first thing utterly shocked me. And then then from there, I walked to that in that second trial, the lawyer said they tried to find the dumbest jurors. They intentionally knew that if they found people that didn't think critically, that they could show them imagery of Hamas is terrorist acts, which we all agree are horrible. And right, then, absolutely, and had nothing to do with my father. <laughs> had nothing to do with your dad, but show them bloody, gory images over and over again, and then and then say material support, material support, and then what is it? We don't actually have any, but we have a a, a guy from Israel that we bring over that sort of he could have made up information because he's working as an informant for the Israelis. So, yeah, he was he was the first. It was the first time in American history where. 
like uh, somebody was allowed to testify with a pseudonym and yeah. testifying with a pseudonym basically completely counteracts the whole point of, of having a free examination, fair, a free and yeah, fair trial, a free and fair trial. When you cross examine a witness, you need to know who they are, what their name is, you know, what their background is. If you don't have that information, it completely limits you from being able to, yeah, have a free and fair trial. Yeah, and, and, and that's a great cross-examine. But that person was working for the Israeli government, which was ignored. So the Israeli government intelligence intelligence agency who's trying to undermine anything that supports Palestine. So his right. agenda, his agenda is not being honest. His agenda is actually to lie in favor of what supports the the Israeli uh, view of the world, which is so sickening. Right, right. Yeah. And and I do want to make a, a, a clarification to here. It's, it's more like the Zionist view, like the view that believes that like that area is just a Jewish state and has slowly over the years infiltrated that whole land, which in 1948, you know, before that was, you know, pretty much a beautiful piece of land that was peacefully like uh, Jews, Muslims, and because it is such an epicenter of all of the, the religions and people mm. lived peacefully uh, alongside each other for thousands of years. It's such a myth that like this is an area that's been war torn no like for thousands of years this area was at peace mm. and muslims jews and christians lived peacefully there and what was funny even though they would show all these photos of suicide bombings which were completely irrelevant when it came to actually giving the history of that piece of land it was not admissible again and again the judge and you know the the the, the uh, prosecution would object against telling the, the history of that area, which I think is very crucial to telling the story and, and ar arguing this case, but mm. continued over and over again to completely reject this type of evidence, deeming it as irrelevant. So it mm. was a very one-sided case and we did not get a fair trial. And well, the I, wanted, bottom... I wanted to add to that, by the way, because this is what I took away, which is which felt even worse than what you just said, is that your dad wasn't allowed to show the charity that he was doing. So right. not, not only were they forced to see the raven, ravages of what Hamas was doing, we had no association with them, but Absolutely they not. could not show the charity work. They couldn't show the little kids and the people in the wheelchairs and the actual hospitals where the money was going. Like the fact that that was not able to, that was inadmissible. It, it, it boggles the mind. I don't know how that works. Right. Yeah. It, anyone, I mean, the, that trial, the, the second trial was packed. I mean, both were um, to the brim, like every, every bench, like people had to literally sit like this in the courtroom because mm. there were so many people, people were, some people were standing up. It would almost max out the, the, the capacity of the room. Yeah. And there were like, there was not just community members who knew my father, who were, you know, like he was part of like the Mexican immigrant, you know, he was just such a human rights activist. There were people from every group, you know, of, of, of people. It was beautiful. He had a variety of supporters. Mm -hmm. He had American, you know, um, human rights activists. There were just people from all over who would pack that room. And every single person who was there was in utter shock moment after moment to see like, how could this even be possible? Yeah. You know, but like, unfortunately, like my father's case is not unique and that there are so many people after 9-11 who became collateral damage and who were falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, and unfortunately falsely sentenced mm. and into these just very dramatic, you know, sentences and continue to be there until this day. Yeah, it feels like someone had to take the blame. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can I ask uh, your father in this moment, like, how is he? Yeah, yeah, that's a are great question. To, are you Are you able to see him? Yeah, so the last time I ever saw my father was um, literally like three weeks before they shut down the world for this mm. pandemic. So it was in March, uh, kind of early March of 2019. Uh, or sorry, 2020, that was the year. And uh, I had gone with my sister um, 
and she was pregnant with my nephew at the time. And so he got to see my sister pregnant, which was nice. He was so happy that he was going to be, this was going to be his second grandbaby. And it was a beautiful visit. You know, they, they only let us, they put this box, like this taped box around every visitor group. And they let us stay within that taped box. We can hug him for only a few seconds. And then we have to sit across from each other. So he's on a row and we're on a row. And it was beautiful to be able to see him and connect and everything. Um, but yeah, we haven't actually seen him since then because I even like got married uh, in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> um, and my husband uh, got to meet him through the phone and everything. But because all the visitations were pretty much shut down until the vaccinations came out, we haven't been able to see him. And now we just literally heard in the past, like maybe two weeks, that the visitations have opened up again, but get this, for one hour behind the glass. And so my father, being who he is, was like, it is not worth it for you guys to get flights, rent a hotel room, rent a car, so that you can see me for one hour behind glass. No, thank you. Like, let's mm -hmm. wait until, but that's such a true, like, representation of who he is. Like, from the moment that he entered, and I do want to share what he said on sentencing day here in a little bit. From the moment that he entered prison, he was at peace. You know, he 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 had many chances to just plead guilty for the sake of like the American government and the prosecution feeling like they could be right. But he said there there's nothing on this planet that's gonna make me plead guilty to feeding like hungry orphans and supporting people in need. This was a very like I'm very proud of those actions. And we were like, well, dad, it's okay, you know. You could, but he's just he's he he's he has such a strong resolve in what mm -hmm. he believes in, and uh, you know even you know he could be the type of father that could be miserable, that could be sad, that could be just in this depressive state, and yet he is our greatest driving force. He is like you know my brothers who again were teenagers at the time. I always say like if it weren't for what happened with my father. They wouldn't be where they are today. My brothers are now like serial entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial prodigies, you know, own a few multi-million dollar companies. And this was all driven by the rage and the anger, as you know, Andy, like yeah. I wrote I when I was writing the article about you, like rage is a very powerful tool and can create that space of success when you allow it to. Um, but they've, yeah, they, it's, he, he's been such a driving force. And, and to put it in a nutshell, he is more like physically, oh, sorry, he's more mentally, spiritually, and emotionally free than most people I know. Yeah. We actually had one of our favorite guests. He spent 20 years, or was it 20 or 30 years behind, behind bars? And when he came on, you feel how clear and comfortable he is, how much he had to make peace with. Kenny Johnson right. is his name. We love, right, uh, we right. love Kenny. Yeah, uh, and it's funny because I always call him like the Palestinian Nelson Mandela, my father. Yeah, that, because... this is exactly, I wrote on the, <laughs> I just wrote on this paper Mandela. And, yeah. and I think it's so ironic that he was listening and sharing Mandela with you as you were a child. And now right. he is actually living the life of a Mandela in the sense of right. imprisoned for things that were actually not just. Right. It was like his yeah. subconscious mind was already a part of this, you know, kind of like, you know, yeah, I mean, the, the, these martyrs that have kind of like, you know, sacrificed their life and their families and everything for years and years and decades and decades in order to create real impact and change and political yeah. like shifts in the world, you know. Yeah, I mean, isn't that amazing if you look at your dad in that light? Because that's how I began to see him as I dug into this, mm. is like, what an incredible man your dad is. Like, yeah. he's like the kind of dad I would want to have in my life. As you know, I didn't have a very good relationship with my dad, but someone that I could look up into and respect because they lived a life of principle. And 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 then that that's what I took away from your dad and his journey. Like the thing you wrote, I wrote down when, when he... We didn't even get into the point when the FBI broke into the house in 2001. Right. And, but when he looked at you and said, keep your head up high because your father did nothing wrong. Yeah, like, he did. He did. Mm -hmm. He managed, 
yeah, that moment was that, that moment was a defining moment for me because, you know, the whole thing was a shock. They went to all five houses at the same time. It was seven a.m. We were sleeping, and I was, I was, I was his his daughter, like his his beloved daughter. Like he showed me everything out of all six kids, and they all are very passionate about this, but none of them knew my father like I did. I was the oldest. I was the one that he would take to the charity and show me like, this is the work that we're doing. I would get on the phone calls and do like help and volunteer with infomercials. He would show me the burn victims who died during phosphorus bombings in Palestine who would come here and they would do these reconstructive surgeries on them. I, as an 11 year old saw these kids who were burned from head to toe. He, he showed me, so much at such a young age that I became the daughter of a revolutionary. I became the daughter of a human rights activist. And I am that through my spirit. That is the greatest. Like I'm also a DJ and I'm also like, I have a lot of multiplicity, but I am in my essence, like an advocate for oneness and humanity. Mm. And so, um, you know, when he walked away to the car and I saw him, get into that car i was the only one i made sure my siblings were still asleep and i was the only one who ran you know out and at first the fbi stopped me there was there was like 30 authorities fbi cia like it was like a whole crime scene in front of our house i ran out i pushed them out of my way and i ran out and i said baba 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 in arabic and he he basically he, he stops and they were going to shove him in the car and he looks into my eyes and he said, he says, keep your head up high, Baba. He would call me Baba, like, mm-hmm. you know, as a term of endearment, like, because your father did nothing wrong. And that those words stayed in my heart, like till this moment, that's what keeps mm-hmm. my heart beating. I want to say what, what I feel like I want to correct something that you said, which we spoke <laughs> earlier is that in a weird way, your dad wasn't a revolutionary because that would imply that in some ways he was doing something to cause trouble. He actually yeah. was, he was doing the right thing. And by doing the right thing, he became a revolutionary. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. It, it, he was more, when I say that, and there's so many meanings to so many words. Of course. It was more like uh, not a revolutionary in, in that he creates revolt a revolutionary in that he leads a revolution through his very essence, a revolution for humanitarianism a revolution for, you know, like seeing all people as one. And that's what I meant Mm. by that. (laughs) And there's a reason why I say that. And I think you probably already know that is because there's people out there that don't want to understand this story. Right. They actually are hoping that they can take a soundbite out of anything you say, misuse it, miscategorize it, and therefore vilify you even more than you've already been vilified. Right, so, right. so there's a risk in anything you ever do the rest of your life is right. that when people don't really want to look at the facts, they try to sensationalize. And that's one of the things that I'm absolutely just disgusted with in, in life is the need of people to validate a belief that they already have without proof. And it, it gets right. back, it's get back to what you said in the first, in the first trial, when there were two people, two jurors who said, you know, basically there is no proof that he's guilty. I just feel it as right. if the fact that he's a Muslim is proof enough. And, right. and that's, that disgusts me to no end. And one of those jurors were, actually came to the sentencing and she started crying during sentencing day saying like, I didn't realize by by choosing the guilty like verdict route that he would be sentenced to 65 years like even if he was tried in israel this would have been like a couple of years type of situation because he was never charged with one violent act it was all like very convoluted conspiracy based trumped up charges so it was you know yeah so that was definitely interesting to view her now you know kind of uh, sympathetic in that yeah. moment. I mean, the the one thing, because all uh, everything has been exhausted in terms of le- legal recourse. So the really only recourse you right now have right now is a presidential pardon. Other than that, yeah, I guess pre- presidential. 
yeah, presidential clemency, presidential pardon, presidential commutation, any type of, yeah. And, and yeah. And at this point, like we had this whole campaign where it's like, write your senators and this and that, and there's all this stuff. And, you know, I got to a point after the years and years of advocating in, in the Ivy League schools and live television and everything that I just got into this space of defeat. Yeah. Um, and that's where I, if it's okay with you, I'd love to read a little bit about that, that in a story that I wrote. I'd, please, please do. <laughs> okay. So, um, so I said, over the years, I've developed an evasion to deep water. I realize now that it's connected not to fear, but to defeat. After all those years of advocating for my father and hearing no promising news about his release, I started to ask, what's the point? I figured if I can't win at liberating my father, how can I win at anything in life? Jaded was my way of being, disconnected, complacent, numb. I swam in shallow waters. I played small, I held back. I hid in the shadows. Why would anyone be interested in what I had to say? Was I visible? I know they saw me, but did they really see me? Did they really feel my broken heart shattered into a million little fractals of dust, invisible, out of sight? <clears throat> so you see, I wasn't afraid of deep water. I just didn't believe in my ability to swim far. And even if seahorses, starfish, and dolphins swirled around me with warm delight, I would turn away, disenchanted, uninterested. I would diminish them like I diminished myself. Years of suffering came from the narratives I had whispered to myself, from the false interpretations of endless self-sabotage. But now I see that my pain was self-inflicted. Self I chose to suffer. I chose defeat. And through this, my story of not being enough, I chose scarcity. Um, I see now that I matter and that my life is worth living. That by choosing to live, I can inspire others to live. I see now that I am capable. Um, and then I just kind of say, like, no more asking, what's the point? The point is obvious. The entrapment of my father does not mean, does not have to mean the end of mine. His spirit lives through me. His voice lives through me. He laid the foundation of this strong moral sense of justice. He gave me so much. He passed on his torch of advocacy and harmony. And now I get to create a new legacy. I get to choose connection and abundance. I get to choose possibility over defeat, breakthrough, uh, my evasion to deep water, I get to dive unbound through the depths of the sunning seas, under the silhouettes of stingrays and sea turtles, through the mystical harmonic vibration of whales. I get to truly, fully, powerfully live. So that's just kind of a piece I wrote recently where like I had gone through this like moment of defeat, you know, and you know, it's it truly is like my father who continues to you know, just inspire us to live. He says, I want you to live your life. You know, don't worry about me. I'm good here. You know, like just continue to be you, continue to reach all your greatest potentials. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for creating the space for me to read it. <laughs> and I always tear up when I read it because it's just such a journey, you know, like going from there to here. And it's definitely not linear either. Like there's moments where it comes back and then, you know, <laughs> so. And what is that piece actually, what does it mean to you now, that piece? So, yeah, that piece now, you know, that was probably like where I was like, you know, in the, like a couple of years ago, you know, I did a ton of personal development work around this. I was so angry at all, everything authoritarian from the cops to the, you know, and I did this leadership training and there was a New York police officer in my team. And I had this wow. long journey of like, like, not like, there's so many of you who are amazing and you, you know, so many of you who are protectors and, you know, I just had to really come to this 
point where like I realized like it was I was very traumatized by everything that had happened and I had really like kind of just through that anger created a lot of narratives about myself about my potential you know and now like it's just such a beautiful thing to look back on and see like how far I've come mm. that's beautiful hmm you know, when I sent you the message to ask if you want to do the show, I didn't know any of this. You know that. <laughs> so you, you were the first guest who said, Andy, we got to talk. And, <laughs> and, 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 and when you said it, I was like, oh, shit, what have I gotten myself into here? And, um, and, and there was something in your voice, which when we hung up the phone, I'd already felt this is going to be the, the one of the least comfortable interviews I'm going to do because yeah. it's not only about a healing process. It's about an ongoing injustice. Right. And, 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 and I noticed that's just harder for me to hold space for because I can feel anger in myself as well as you just mentioned. So, right. Yeah. There's still like a stuckness or an, like a kind of uncertainty, you know, it's like story is not complete. You know, I continue to imagine him, you know, uh, just released one day, like on the beach somewhere in Turkey or something with my mom, just having a brand new, beautiful chapter, you know, my husband and I, it's one of the greatest things where I fell in love. So, or rose in love with my husband is when he told me one day that let's meditate for his release. And we did this long, beautiful mantra and he kept telling me just keep imagining him like walking out, you know, Mm. and those are the types of things that I think are very powerful is like, Mm. you know, of course, you know, creating something where it can create that virability, you know, Um, and then also just like the power of meditation and the power of, of thought, you know, and, so we've definitely done a lot of work around that as well. And yeah, mm-hmm. we're open to any and all support <laughs> as a family, like as yeah. far as like, you know, any connections, any networking of, of, you know, any like badass lawyers who can swoop through here and, and yeah. say like, I know just what to do. Any like campaign activists, like people. Yeah. yeah. It really sounds like your love for this man has really defined your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. The, my father really, really created a, like such a safe, loving space for like the divine masculine energy. Yeah. Like I, you know, yeah, he was such a beautiful example of what uh, like a divine masculine man gets to be. And so I, I have that to look up to every day. And my husband is is such a beautiful example of that too and they always say like fathers be good to your daughters because they'll marry like they'll marry a man like you and yeah. that's exactly what happened with me and i'm so grateful i'm never, never <laughs> going to say how long is it till he goes to prison <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> that Please was a bad say, joke cancel 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 <laughs> it, it, it's hard, it's hard not to see that though also yeah. in in this face yeah is he is he also using his voice in the prison or is, is he completely cut off? From- is he allowed to? Yeah. 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 So right now my father only, uh, so he, he's such an intellectual. It's so funny. Like more than most people out here, he has a subscription to the New Yorker to like, he literally has a subscription to like every major, like, like literary journal known to man. He has like, you know, he, he listens to like NPR and a bunch of radio shows and, you know, like he sent me this beautiful, just two days ago, he, he only can communicate through phone calls and emails. And so he emailed Dylan and I, my husband and I, uh, he says, there's, there's a beautiful podcast about called the Palestinian table. And it's a woman who, whose father, I believe is Christian and his her mother is Muslim and she lives in Jerusalem and she talks about like Palestinian cuisine and it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful like podcast. And I'm like, dude, you're finding things that I don't even find while I'm out here. Like he, he created a connection while I was at the new school with Dave Eggers, Dave freaking Eggers, Eggers, the literary Pulitzer prize, like finalist. Um, and I became friends with Dave Eggers as a result. And I wrote for his literary magazine 
um, about my father's case, actually. And a book ended up being published uh, called Patriot Acts. Um, and it has a chapter about my father. And again, like he, he, that's my father. Like he's so connected, even mm-hmm. though he has very, like he's very well read. You know, his book library in there is is massive. You know, he's always having to give away books to make space for new books. So he's still like stimulating his mind. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's definitely like, he memorized the whole Quran. He's wow. never like, he probably knew just bits and pieces of it, but like he memorized the whole Quran. Like imagine memorizing like the whole Bible, like mm-hmm. word for word, you know, like, so he's, he's making the most out of his time. He's more fit than most men like a third of his age like he's 67 years old and like is fully fit you know like working out like he's yeah i mean like he's doing everything to keep him mentally physically and spiritually stimulated and strong Mm. so inspiring and if you think about it he is surrounded potentially with a lot of people that have done a crime right yeah Yeah. absolutely yeah Am I, can I send him my books? Um, so you can send him any book you want, but it definitely gets to be through the publisher. So it, you would get to order it through a publishing house. But there's so many rules. Like it can't be a hardcover because that could be considered of a Of course it could be, yeah. <laughs> in prison. And so you, could, you can't send food. You can't send anything. You could only send soft cover books. And that's pretty much it. Like we can't send him gifts or food or anything like that. You know, he could send gifts. He has like these websites where he'll buy my mom like purses or like there's this this flower. He'll order her flowers. Like my mom is in Jordan right now. And he ordered her, I think like 500 different roses, you know, and she just finds it one day. And what a, what a trooper she is. Like she's, right now taking care of her mother in in Jordan and my brothers being where they're at right now have, have, you know, so gratefully given the space to my mother for, you know, to support her while she's, you know, continuing the acts of service, which is so beautiful to witness, but, you know, to be her, like, that's a whole other, like I'm his daughter, but to be his wife, Mm. you know, to, for almost 20 years now, like to be without your husband, like, I, I deeply, deeply sympathize with my mother and like, yeah. you know, um, try, try as much as possible to be super compassionate because to be where she is, is a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. Her partner is still alive. So he's still alive, but he's not physically there. It's, it's, it's the biggest screwing with your mind. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, in the documentary, which I recommend everyone watch, it's just so watch it and and br- bring a barf bag because you'll feel sick to your stomach <laughs> afterwards. It's on Al Jazeera World, and it's the holy. It's is it is it the Holy Land five? And there's a part one and a part two, forty five minutes each. We can end right. Yeah. Um, I, I recommend people go and watch it because it was really well done. But I guess the, the question I have is in that documentary, there was an individual that was also preparing to write a book. Is that book existing or is it still being written or what happened with that? Yeah, there's actually multiple books that are being written. There was a book by Miko Peled, who actually is an Israeli born citizen, mm-hmm. um, Jewish, you know, Israeli who wrote uh, a book called A Soldier's Son and uh, literally about like his family being Israeli and um, coming from a line land, a long line of like military and um, basically realizing at one point in his youth that like there are so many myths in that area and now became like a huge advocate for the Holy Land Five and wow. their release. And so it's a beautiful perspective um, that will really help dismantle some of the occupation and oppression in that area and that like that separation between Palestinians and Israelis because you know that 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 to me like that that illusion of separation um, and really creating uh, just a sense of oneness in that area is going to be ultimately what's going to like cause the walls around Palestine to fall and the walls around yeah. the other to fall simultaneously but so he wrote a book and then there's at least a couple other people like a university professor and um, another university professor actually 
one of my university professors at the new school was so moved by this case that mm. she ended up like basically researching it and like now she's in the midst of like writing a book about it which is crazy <laughs> yeah what wild you know, I, I, yeah. I can't, I, I think of all the Netflix series that I've watched that I thought weren't even as as contentious as what exists in your own life. And I can't understand why. And I kind of feel like I understand why, because the Muslim topic, it just isn't as appealing. There's something about like Islamophobia that you already alienate everyone that wants to vilify Muslims because of 9-11. So there's right. a, it's a harder sell at this point, And that's, and, and that's just stating it like no one can deny that there is a resentment that goes so deep that people can't see beyond it. Yeah. Right. I'm such a walking oxymoron, though, because like, you know, yes, I have this whole advocate noor that is so embedded into who I am. And then I also have, uh, you know, this whole other beautiful side to me of like, you know, I'm a, a DJ of electronic music and I think we can definitely twist this in a very beautiful, sexy way. You know what I mean? <laughs> and yeah, I'm I, all for it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you don't represent what one, one would look at your Facebook page and say, oh, that's a Muslim. There's no way that that's what they, that's not the conclusion you'd come to. Yeah, but they also wouldn't say that. A she, typical, right? They also wouldn't say that she's the daughter of a terrorist. No, of course like, not. Spending the, the last hour with you, there's so much loving yeah. you. Right, it, Exactly. Yeah. And you can tell, I mean, you can tell love comes from love. So the, the love and spaciousness that you've created, even towards what one might see as this aggressor, is a testament to how beautiful your father actually is. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. My BFF in New York, my husband, like everybody who truly knows me, they're like, wow, I thank your father every day because I can see him through you yeah. and vice versa. And so, yeah, so much of it. Uh, kind of is passed on and people can feel it. <laughs> well, I'm going to try to pronounce his name again, or you can pronounce it so I don't have Ras- to mess it up. Rassan. <laughs> Hassan Elashi. Rassan Elashi, yeah. Let's just say that in the history books, he'll be recognized as one of these individuals that took a stand against an authority, an oppressive authority, who wasn't able to see the beauty that he was embodying, just like Nelson Mandela. And, Absolutely. And when that day happens, everyone will have to look in the mirror and say, where was I when this was going on? And why didn't I see that this is the society we'd become? And, uh, and, and, and in a way, as an American... Uh, you know, I haven't lived there for many, many years, but I feel a lot of shame to see that this beacon on a hill that's supposed to be the democracy, which is supposed to be the basis for all other democracies, continues to show itself over and over again to me in ways that show that it is no different than anyone else that they're accusing of injustice. And this yeah. is an exact example of that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When people say America the Great, you yeah. know, I get. I get slightly triggered because <laughs> I do, I do know that this is, this is a, like that this country has so much potential. And I know that, you know, my father would always talk about like, did you know that it was a crime for a black man to marry a white woman, like maybe 60, 70 years ago, yeah. you know, and he, that was him. Like we grew up hearing like all these yeah. like facts, you know, and like, but now it isn't, you know, and now like multiracial marriages is, 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 you know, part of the norm. But like, you know, like there's so much like back and forth and like so many mistakes that we get to make as a collective and as a country in order to then like realize that like that was not that was not the right thing to do. And this is going to be very much a part of that. And yes, he will be in history books and uh, there will be. Um, you know, reciprocity around this and like some, uh, you know, public uh, uh, apologies and, you know, the truth will come out because yeah. oppressive, like any, any type of oppressive reality is not sustainable. No. It just isn't like, and it may take, you know, years, it may take decades, but ultimately the truth is revealed and justice is restored. Mm. Um, yeah. I think the truth is already being revealed, to be honest with you. Right. I just think that the individuals aren't ready to face the reality of their actions. 
Right. And then just the collective mindset, you know, that's where it starts. Like, you know, again, going back to like writing your senators, is that what really is going to truly support like the freedom of people like my father is the collective mindset shifting, you know, into really just realizing that like, you know, that, you know, people like him, they, they are just like us and that there is no separation and that he was a philanthropist and a humanitarian and those were his only crimes. And, uh, you know, when he got up to the mic on sentencing day, um, you know, he basically says like, the only crime that you have against me is signing a check, Um, signing a check that will give people scholarships despite their circumstances you know, signing a check that will, you know, feed hungry orphans, signing that check that will help somebody rebuild their home after it was bulldozed unjustly, you know, and that was the greatest part of my life. And that was the most honorable part of my life was to sign that check, you know, and so Mm -hmm. to really, you know, I think once the collective realizes um, that, that that's all, you know, people in the Holy Land Foundation ever intended to do and ever did, like, you know, then we're going to start to see that paradigm shift. Yeah. Wow. We've gone over our hour as I expected. (laughs) Is there anything else you'd like to include before we close up? Is there anything that you'd like to say or? or I just wanted to say like, thank you, Andy and Bambo for having me on and for creating the space to just, share love you nor yeah thank you. <laughs> love thank you, you. So much. yeah well it's beautiful to have that hour how was it for you i'm processing jesus yeah i'm sweating a lot actually i noticed that when um when a subject comes on where I can feel it in my body that my body really gets a energetic, uh, and you could see it in me today. I really had a hard time not feeling the the frustration that that comes up with this sort of injustice in the world. But I must say that I, on one side, I actually saw something unique that I didn't expect was the admiration for this man, because mm. it's these sort of men that change the world. And and it's it's funny because it would be great to ad- admire them in the moment that they're in those positions and not after they're gone. Yeah. So it's wonderful to celebrate him for actually representing something so beautiful and actually also exposing something <laughs> which is horrendous, an injustice in a system that isn't actually able to manage it. Yeah. So thank you for joining us. It was... Uh, it was a wild word. I have no words. Yeah, <laughs> I leave you with that. We love you all. Thank you for see this you time. We will see you tomorrow on. A wonderful. Chaos. It's a wonderful chaos. We like it down.